This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 79 of Everyday Buddhism, Making Every Day Better. In this episode, I talk with Deborah Eden Tull, a Zen meditation and mindfulness teacher, author, activist, and sustainability educator. Eden spent seven years training as a Buddhist monk at a silent Zen monastery and has been teaching Dharma for 19 years. She has also been living in and teaching about sustainable communities for more than 25 years. Her teaching style is grounded in compassionate awareness, experiential learning inquiry, and a commitment to personal transformation. She teaches engaged awareness practice which emphasizes the connection between personal awakening and global engagement. Deborah Eden draws upon teachings from the natural world and an embodied understanding of animism. In addition to her new book, Luminous Darkness, an Engaged Buddhist Approach to Embracing the Unknown, she is the author of Relational Mindfulness, a Handbook for Deepening Our Connection with Ourself, Each Other, and Our Planet, and The Natural Kitchen, Your Guide for the Sustainable Food Revolution. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Tricycle, Shambhala Times, and The Ecologist, among others. She also teaches The Work That Reconnects, a program created by Buddhist scholar Joanna Macy and teaches for UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. Deborah Edenthal offers retreats, online courses, and consultations internationally. I will put links to her these offerings through her website um, on my show notes. In our conversation, though, we discuss her latest book, Luminous Darkness, an Engaged Buddhist Approach to Embracing the Unknown. It's a deep book, bridging the Dharma, deep ecology, shamanic practice, personal awareness, and transformation through the lens of darkness and all that that word connotes, like uncertainty, change, the unknown, grief, and fear. Among many other things, we talk about the intersection of spirituality and capitalism, 
releasing the pattern of hierarchical, hierarchical perception, the rational and linear as God, the alchemy between student and teacher, personal agency as a practitioner, and leading in the dark and being, being led by the dark, the, the authority of the heart, living in inquiry and dropping the need to be an expert, <laughs> and showing up just as we are in our strength and our vulnerability as compared to sunshining and denialism. Reading, reading Eden's book was a profound journey that I hope you'll consider taking. And I so enjoyed this conversation with her. It's one of my favorite books and one of my new favorite podcast episodes. This conversation, we were able to go deeper than just what I learned from reading her book, sharing and comparing our personal observations while I continue to learn from her. I hope you'll continue to listen to the talk with Deborah Edenthal and discover how her approach may help you, as Joanna Macy commented, quote, navigate the uncertainty of our times, unquote. The conversation starts now. Well, Deborah Eden Tall, welcome to Everyday Buddhism Podcast. Uh, you go by Eden, so I'll just let everybody know that, that from now on, I will be addressing you as Eden. Um, I've been really looking forward to talking with you because as I was reading your book, I kept saying, oh, I'd love to talk to her about this. I'd love to talk to her about this. And I just showed her all the dog ears in my book. And there is just no way we can talk about all the things I've dog eared. <laughs> Thank you so much for that warm welcome. And I'm uh, really excited to see where we go in this conversation and which one of those dog ears we touch. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, you know, I was trying to rank them this morning as I was preparing them. And I, I thought like you, I'll just trust whatever. It'll come up how it comes up. So we'll trust the organic conversation. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Um, first of all, I, I, I loved how you, you know, I, your background is so interesting with with the, I guess you'd call it the weave of Buddhism and shamanism and all these things that are you know, add so much flavor and depth to your writing. I, I believe your writing is awesome, by the way. I, um, I, I consider myself a, a writing snob. Um, so, so I, I really loved it. Your book, uh, reads kind of like a river, you know what I mean? You just, you go and it takes you there. And, and when preparing for this podcast, I would be reading it in the morning in my meditation time. And I love that so much because it really allowed me to dive into that river. So the river metaphor that. means a lot to me. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Production. I love, I love, uh, reading, stuff that re I don't like to, the you know, sometimes transitions annoy me, you know, <laughs> like here, now we're going to do this. I like it when it just kind of flows into the next subject. And, and I found that you did that. Um, so I shared your bio in the introduction um, to the conversation. Um, but there were, you know, there are so many fascinating things about your life that a bio 
doesn't even come close to touching. Um, and personally, as I, and I, I shared this with you before we started recording, as I read your book, um, I found so many similarities to stuff in my life. And, and I'm hoping that other readers have that same experience. I don't know, you know, it's, it's an interesting conjunction of things that I found, um, you know, similar to what I've gone through and your aha moments uh, in that I had reading about your life, I thought could only come from someone who spent time in darkness. Huh. There's no way because it takes that reflection to come up with the insight or light that you found in the darkness. Mm -hmm. So could you just tell us a bit more about, you know, the flavor of your life experiences, your personal challenges that brought you here? Sure. Well, I share the same hope you do, that the book touches people, that they resonate with experiences I've had that perhaps they haven't heard pointed to or spoken of so often in other books. So I really did choose to write about more the dark side of things and the medicine of darkness. And the call I felt to write this book pointed me to really open to recognize that the darkness and luminous darkness has been a profound teacher my entire life through so many different experiences. And yet in a world that's fixated on light, the dominant paradigm, oftentimes I had either discounted those experiences or um, frame them as a difficult practice opportunity uh, rather than a golden life experience that affirmed my resilience and my capacity for love and my embodiment and my aliveness. And so when we bring in the phrase luminous darkness and look at what are the spiritual teachings of darkness and also, as I share in the book, how have wisdom traditions across the world celebrated darkness and not framed it in the same way the dominant paradigm does, so much opens up. Yeah. So for me to get specific in my life experience, I would say two things that drew me to Buddhist practice originally were one, um, love of this earth and a deep connection with the earth that's only become deeper and deeper and deeper with practice and also the experience of grief. And so I share in the book about losing my father when I was young, when I was 11. And he learned he had just a month left to live one day out of the blue, which was quite a shock, but also losing some of my other closest mentors in the, the years that followed that. And recognizing that uh, there wasn't going to be any uh, quick ride through this grief, that this grief was a journey that was requiring my full presence. And so these are two of the things that pointed me to the Buddhist path. And I've always been, um, I'm sure many of the listeners can resonate with this, but a, a really sensitive being and <laughs> sensitive energetically aware of the invisible realm as well as the visible realm. Um, sensitive in a world that you know the dominant paradigm says 
extroversion and loudness and force right. are much more <laughs> powerful than receptivity. But but I um, believe differently. And so I was called on a path that helped me to understand and experience the gifts of receptivity and sensitivity and our awakeness or tactile awareness of life and of interconnection as a strength instead of uh, something to judge. So there's plenty more I could say about the experiences that led to this book, but I'll stop there. No, that was good because it wasn't, uh, as, I, as I expected, sort of anticipated the way you might answer that um, based on reading your book. It wasn't just a, a, a tick off biography <laughs> or autobiography. Um, first I studied to be a Zen monk. Then I left being a Zen monk. I mean, you know, all those, that's all in the book, read it and find out, but, there, <laughs> <laughs> but there's much, it's much more about, you know, flowing through those life challenges, uh, you know, like, like death, illness, and all those, you know, just drawing through, flowing through life. Those are the things that happen in life. I mean, it's not, it's not that any of us sort of escape that stuff, you know, old age, sickness, and death, you know, um, the, the Buddhist uh, way of, of, you know, the five remembrances, you have to remember that those are the things that we have to deal with, even though uh, we live in a culture of ignoring that sort of thing as much as we can, which we'll talk about. Yes. Um, but um, I want, the way you answered that question, it leads me to this too. I wanted to talk about this is, you know, your book is about darkness and like the title says, but it says luminous darkness. Um, but the subtitle, which is, an engaged Buddhist approach to embracing the unknown. The unknown is such a big subject and so important, especially today, you know, when we're living with this, I don't know, you know, post-pandemic, post-racial violence, you know, social, um, political upheaval and uh, racial injustice. And oh, there's just so much. And, and it's all unknown to us in our generations, I think. Um, there's very few of us alive who live through that kind of torment. I mean, you shared some of it from your background with your grandparents um, during during the time of the Holocaust. But, um, you know, most of us haven't had a direct experience to our lives being in upheaval in the way they have been more recently. So, um the unknown is, is critical. And, but it's, you know, it's not about darkness in the way we might think of it as, you know, the physical, the physical seeming absence of light, right? That's, that's how we think of darkness, but all things connotatively synonymous with darkness, like yes. the unknown change, transformation, what's hidden. So because your book, touches on those subjects they touch on them in 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 the way you you talked about it through the death and all the things that happened in your life but also the thing that was that I was sort of um you know caught me was chronic illness and I've shared this with my listeners I I've suffered with systemic lupus which is a chronic 
uh, uh, autoimmune disease. Um, and I've suffered with leaving a spiritual path, just like you. I left to, you know, decades of studying under in Tibetan Buddhism because it just felt wrong. I don't, you know, I, you, I think you had better reasons, uh, but I think mine were similar in that it was hierarchical and patriarchal. Um, and, answering a scary calling by jumping into a new path. I did the same thing by jumping into starting a podcast, starting a sangha and so forth. But, you know, I believe, and we talked about this at the beginning a little bit, readers will find themselves in your book too, even if they don't suffer with chronic illness or didn't have a loss of a parent at age 11. So when you were writing this book, especially in the parts when you were telling your own story, did you imagine how, I don't know how, all of our common paths through change and transformation, did you imagine your readers? Because like I said, I like to think about how someone writes a book. Did you imagine that or was just a matter of telling your story? Thank you. Great question. Yes, I imagined uh, the <laughs> readers and the readers with me. And for me, um, I'm a writer and a teacher, a mentor. So the book is written also as an experience, not let me offer my knowledge or experience yeah. to you. Let me invite you here with me into an embodied experience, an inquiry, some practices, some considerations. How does what I am sharing meet or touch you? And yes, as you shared so beautifully, we're in an age of global uncertainty. We're facing collectively a greater uncertainty and unknown than any of our ancestors faced. So it's an incredibly potent moment in time. And without knowing the exact life experiences of those who will be reading this book, I can say um, that on the spiritual path, each and every one of us is invited to walk through the unknown, to leave the familiar shore, to leave habit pattern, fixed sense of identity, to leave comfort zone and venture out into the unknown, not yet knowing where the next shore will be. And collectively, there's no way around it. We have all been asked <laughs> to right. open our eyes to the, the great unknown of the challenges and opportunity we're facing today. Um, so it was clear with me that this book would be resonant <laughs> and that those who need to find this book, I always trust um, uh, spirit assists with this, that it lands in the hands of those who need its medicine. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's actually happened to me before while I've been in a bookstore. I mean, that's one of the things that got me into um uh, aware of this this the 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 path of buddhism that's not that wasn't tibetan buddhism when i had a, a book uh, i was in in a bookstore back when we had bookstores more um i went when i was in a bookstore and i was pulling out buddhist books and this book fell down right and then and then i i picked it up and i put it back and then when i came back again it was still falling out and so it was like that was sort of like okay i better i'm buying this book whatever whatever it is i'm buying this book 
I know all about bookstore magic and it is one of the, the heartbreaks about there being less authentic bookstores left. Yeah, right? I miss, I yes. miss, yeah. I miss, you know, there, I, you know, there is something very convenient about being able to get a book instantly, you know, um, but there, it was also a much more, oh, just such a complete embodied experience to be in a bookstore, just touching books. That's why, you know, I, I, you know, saving the planet, I hate to ha buy so many physical books or get so many physical books. And now that I'm doing podcasts, people send me books. Um, but, but, and you know, it's, I, I share them with other people when I'm done with them, but, mm. but I can't, I have trouble with electronic books, Kindle books. I can't, I, mm -hmm. I have a Kindle, I start reading, but I'm thinking, oh gosh, I need to have, I need to see those words on a piece of yeah. paper. So yeah, that's a long, you know, <laughs> sideways. And just to add in one of the offerings in luminous darkness is just for us to look a little more honestly and deeply at the physical, spiritual, emotional experience of so much more screen time and so much more artificial lighting in our world. Oh, so yeah. I really resonate with just appreciating a, a handheld book sometimes. Yeah. yeah, you know, and you did touch on this in, in answering my previous question about how you share exercises and and um, um, I think you called them meditative inquiries. Is that right? Meditative, mm -hmm. something, yeah. Meditate. People will love those. Um, they, they really do invite that pause. I, I you know, cause it's, you know, I, I teach this all the time in my sangha and to people who write in about, with questions on the podcast is like, you know, there's, there's, there's three, there's, there are three sort of, uh, admonitions and how you deal study the dharma and it's um listen right listen or read and 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 then reflect and then meditate and as i always share uh poking fun of, of myself as well because i did the same thing you know I always call them nightstand Buddhists or, you know, whatever nightstand spiritual seekers. Hey, all these books piled up. They just read and then they read and then they read, but they don't do the other two steps. Right. And yeah. so that yeah. you have that built in area for reflection is awesome. Um, so I, there's a little hint to that. What's in the book. <laughs> I would just add, I think it's easy to unconsciously in today's world go into a kind of passive consumerism that one isn't yes. even aware of where we're passively consuming teachings we're hearing but not allowing ourselves the space and time to embody them or passively consuming something that we're uh, watching online but losing the other side of engagement and i had a rich conversation with my sangha the other day just about the teacher-student-mentor-mentee relationship. There are great teachers out there. And in the intersection of spirituality and capitalism, there's far too much. And historically, this happens to putting these teachers on a pedestal. Oh, it's yeah. not just the teacher. It's the alchemy between the mentor and the mentee, the teacher and student. And so for the person who's interested in waking up, it really requires their willingness to engage, to question, to bring their questions forth, to take agency for their practice. You mentioned a few minutes ago, leaving 
your formal training when you felt like it was time. I see that as part of you trusting your inner agency. That's yeah. vital as a practitioner that you knew something about this is no longer true for me now, something about this form. Yeah. 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 And you know, I like what you said about taking the agency to learn and not blaming it on the teacher. I, my teacher always used to say he was a great joker and we just lost him this past year. Mm -hmm. Um, and I always think he was such a great joker. He had his head shaved and I always, I lost my hair about uh, three weeks. I lost my hair completely about three weeks after he passed, probably from the stress of it. Um, could be, I don't know, but I still joke around and say that I think he took my hair um, <laughs> sort, of an, <laughs> sort of an initiation. Mm -hmm. But he used to say, you know, funny, he used to say, I hear all the time, because he used to, was a uh, minister in the Buddhist churches of America uh, with his father. And those, this, the, one of the main Shin, pres Shin Buddhist presences in the United States. His father founded the Buddhist temple of Chicago, um, was one of the first uh, sh uh, Shin or Buddhist temples in the Midwest or the United States. So, you know, when, when, when the, when Buddhism came to America, you know, there was the Tibetan Buddhists and there were the Zen Buddhists, but there was also this Japanese Mahayana tradition because, um, when they were all in encampments during the war, um, and my teacher was was raised in an encampment and then when they were let out uh he went his father went and formed the the buddhist temple of chicago so he my teacher which was the guy who formed the buddhist temple of chicago his son um he preached for many i would call it preached he he gave he gave dharma talks in this buddhist uh, they called them Buddhist churches, but they really were temples. They called them churches so they wouldn't be arrested. Um, mm -hmm. So, so um, he gave many, many sermons uh, or Dharma talks. And he used to say, oh, I'd have people come up to me and say, well, you know, that wasn't a particularly good sermon and you, you should have said this or they complained or whatever, or they'd he'd hear rumors of it in the, in the background or in the lobby. And he'd say, you know, nobody nobody takes to use your word agency they never blame themselves for being a bad listener <laughs> <laughs> that's great yes so, that's so true um you know it seems propitious to me and i i hate to go here because it's kind of a dark place but hey no no i meant pun intended um <laughs> so uh that we're recording this episode on the day of a full blood moon um coincidentally uh it's election day in the united states where we could be on the cusp of major changes and potentially more political violence and racial, religious hate and othering. Um, so I don't want to get too political. And But um, I think we must enter it fully in, um, towards our discomfort to find where it is luminous, just like you said. Um, but you used a term that I really love, especially because like you, I have a sangha and I try to teach during these podcasts is leading in the dark mm -hmm. okay we're in the dark 
right? In, uh, in the way we've talked about and the way we may get darker, as I just referred to. And you touched on this in your book off and on. So since it's so timely, how do we lead in the dark? And I don't think you were saying we have to be teachers to lead in the dark. How do we lead in the dark? Yeah. Thank you for that. And in the book, I talk about leading in the dark and being led by the dark, being led through the dark. And so there's a lot I could share about this. First, just to acknowledge that one of the intentions of this book is to help us go deeper in releasing the habit pattern of hierarchical perception and all the ways that feeds uh, harm in our world and that takes us away from a clearer seeing. Even just metaphorically, when we close our eyes and pause from the visual field and the habit of, oh, what I see is what's real and set and fixed in stone, we drop into a larger body of awareness, our tactile listening, our deep sensitivity and receptivity to all of life, a deeper center of knowing. Sometimes mm -hmm. in Buddhism, we speak of this as the integration of body-mind, but there's so much language we could use. And I think it's really important in an age where we're facing so much uncertainty to recognize this kind of listening, uh, this expression of relational intelligence, learning to see more clearly in the dark uh, as vitally important. It's also the place, darkness, from which inner vision arises. And I talk about the need for visionary activism. Now back to leading in the dark through hierarchical perception, this has also impacted the entire way we tend to frame leadership. Mm -hmm. um, we yeah. put leaders up on this pedestal and mm -hmm. again, someone out there, those externals, I'll project authority onto them or even onto the my conditioned mind as authority rather than learning to find and access the authority of the heart, the clear seeing of the heart. This is so much the responsibility of each practitioner from my perspective. And in these times, um, so I offer a couple of trainings, which are leadership trainings, and it's about acknowledging, number one, there's a way in which we're all called to be leaders in this time, to step more into the generosity of leadership, taking more responsibility for the medicine we each have to offer and for our engagement with the collective field. Now, taking leadership for someone means uh, they're actually the head of a nonprofit global organization, seeding mm -hmm. change, or they're a Dharma teacher or mindfulness teacher. For someone else, it might simply mean I'm taking more conscious leadership in this age of change in my community, in my home. There's a way each of us are invited to take leadership even within ourselves, in our, in our practice, because again, we're supporting this being, this human. We're learning to mentor this being through the process of waking up from the assumption that the authority is out there. Um, you, you with me so far? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely out that the out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I love uh, the notion. One of the phrases I use in the book is learning to show up naked as leaders, recognizing that beyond the assumption that 
when we have achieved uh, perfection, when we are a complete expert, when we <laughs> know more than anyone else knows, <laughs> when we have accessed all the yang forces, strength, energy, or charisma in the world, then we can step into leadership. That's not what leadership is. Leadership stems from a capacity and willingness to listen deeply and to respond to life through this deep listening, which is supported in the dark, in the mind of don't know. And of course, in Buddhism, this is a popular teaching, learning to rest in the mind of don't know, dropping the mind of the expert to celebrate beginner's mind, this open, this wonder, this curiosity, this state that is really open. And when I use the phrase showing up naked, it's about recognizing that there's a whole element of leadership that occurs just through showing up wherever we are, trusting authenticity rather yeah. than trying to fit a conditioned standard, showing up as we are, practicing transparency, letting ourselves be seen, both in our strengths and in our vulnerabilities, because that's how we touch those we're with. That's how we empower. That's how we let go of the paradigm of power over. I'm the expert leader over you <laughs> and begin to drop. And I think humans have a ton of exciting work to do around this into shared power instead or shared presence as our guide. And when we're in groups, in couples and families and organizations and sangha is willing to spend more time like that showing up as we are resting in the dark and the unknown together and listening deeply i think something incredible happens and i've seen it time and time again <laughs> that that phrase touches leading in the dark and learning to be led in the dark last thing i'll say is that phrase is important, learning to be led in the dark, because of how conditioned many humans are to try, even if it's subconscious, to control life and to control wow. externals, right? And so if I just build the scaffolding externally, the right job, the right partner, the right, hmm, the right speech, I'll bring and present, uh, things will be okay. But it comes from an effort to control rather than a dropping into the river, the flow, the, the shared yeah. presence you pointed to at the beginning of our session. Yeah. It, oh, there's so much I could, I have to, <laughs> I have to get my Take mind your clear. Time. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much that you got me going on here. Um, uh, number one, you use the phrase about deep listening. Uh, deep listening is a practice in Shin Buddhism. It is the practice in Shin Buddhism. I don't know if you're aware of that because most people don't know much about Shin Buddhism, as I said, but deep listening is uh they they don't traditionally they didn't refer to meditation okay they they referred to listening to the dharma in, as it presents in life and that's what we were taught in 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 the training that i took to be a, a lay minister was is was it was that's why this podcast is this podcast that's why it's everyday buddhism because it's about listening to the dharma where it shows up not for me to go out and get it study it whatever is it it will it shows up all the time but one of the wonderful things that um our sangha right now is studying um 
uh, studying a classic Shin text um, by Teatsu Unu. Um, it's called uh, River, Fire, River, Water. And um, it, it, one phrase of it is, it was, it, it, I think it came from one of the great Japanese uh, uh, ancient poets, you know, the, the, the Zen Shin poets who said, um, listening to the light. Okay, because the Amida that is representative as as like the eternal Buddha or you know the the unknown God whatever um, is is considered um, unbound light and mm -hmm. unbounded life and to we must listen for the light and I think one can only listen for the light if one is in the dark um, and so that. That's one thing I wanted to mention. So thank you for that. The other thing was you you talked about the um, you know obviously the 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 perfectionism and getting everything in order. Um, that was another thing that I was really I laughed in your book because you referred to yourself as um, having that Virgo perfectionism. Um, um, I'm not a Virgo. I'm a Capricorn, but, uh, <laughs> but also an earth sign. Um, so I, I'm very aligned with the earth touching Buddha, but I, I have a horrible perfectionism streak, which I've only given up as age has uh, knocked me for a loop of, uh, <laughs> So I I can't be a perfectionist and I'll share a funny story with you that totally illustrates this point, I think. And I wish more people would show up naked like this. When I decided I was going to start this podcast, actually, I didn't decide. That's wrong. Wrong word. Um, people told me to start a podcast. I, 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 I have a background in broadcast engineering. And so it, it was kind of a natural fit for me from the technology perspective and that they kept saying, you should start a podcast about Buddhism. You should start a podcast about Buddhism. And I said, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but, um, and then finally some, I just did. And it, it was the hardest thing to try to do from scratch. I didn't know anything about it. So I had to learn it. Um, but one of the things when I recorded my first podcast, I heard myself and, and I thought to myself, there is no way I can be a Buddhist podcaster because every Buddhist podcast I've ever learned had these people with these nice, soft-spoken Buddhist <laughs> voices. And, and, and I am not that person. I'm this sort of a loud, say whatever comes to mind kind of person. And I thought, this will not work. And But I did it anyway. And then my, wouldn't you know, my first feedback from listeners was that they loved that I was like that. And yes. isn't that interesting? Yes. It makes so much sense to me because it is the expression of practice as the field which welcomes all. And it's so easy at some point in our spiritual journey to project onto the teacher or those elders and think I'm supposed to fit myself into looking like that <laughs> instead of, oh, this practice is to welcome every aspect of my being and then let presence express uniquely through me as it can only through me right yeah that's uh, right i might follow your funny story with one funny story <laughs> good yes <laughs> which has to do with leadership and and authenticity just sharing that when i was a monastic and was asked to 
teach my first retreat and noticed the the self-doubt and the, I don't feel ready for this and um, I'm training simply to train at that point I didn't recognize training also to teach and um, it really stirred a lot in me and I felt self-conscious that first yeah. day of retreat I had to come face to face with uh, the assumption that I was supposed to try to be as close to my teacher's expression right. practice as I could. And so I had a wonderful moment after the first morning of retreat. I was dressed in black and we took a pause to stretch or use the outhouses. And I walked down to our outhouse. We lived in sustainable community and walked back up with the path with all the students on either side of the path without knowing that there was a trail of toilet paper. <laughs> and when I got to, and I was so taking myself too seriously and efforting. And when I got to the top of the path and I noticed that, it just completely, I just burst out laughing and it completely softened the entire facade of self-consciousness and effort. It just erased it. And I was able to, in that moment, just drop down into, oh, what's right here, this being me exactly as I am, letting the teachings come through without effort. That's what I'm here to offer. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's a, I, a wonderful story. That's a, You should have put that in your book. I don't think you did. You talked about being self-conscious, but you didn't talk about the trail of toilet paper. So there you go. So much gets left out due to page numbers. <laughs> uh, oh. I, I absolutely get it. I've written a book and the editing is excruciating. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that that's just awesome you know um one of the the sayings in uh the in the buddhist churches i'm sorry to keep bringing this up but it's come as you are um mm -hmm. come as you are um and because you know we're all human you know and 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 we when we start taking ourselves so seriously like that we forget that everybody walks out of the whether it's an outhouse or a public restroom with sometimes it's on the bottom of your shoe or whatever, we all do it, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and it does, it always happens. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is that, um, and I hope this is okay because I'm going to quote a lot of your book too, but it seems there's this, and I don't know whether it's like, you would tell me more about this because it's not my area. You know, you, you, you've got the, the, the deep intuitive shamanism stuff going on. And I, I'm not saying that in a degrading sort of way. So don't take me wrong, but um, it seems like there's this prevailing theme of darkness. People are writing books about darkness. People are talking about darkness and maybe because of the times, but um, I've read a couple and one is by Clark Strand. I don't know if you know who he is, who also highlights the feminine at work in, in darkness in his book, Waking Up in the Dark. And the other is one from about two decades ago. One of my favorite books is all time, except for maybe yours now. It goes right up there. It was written by John Tarrant. I don't know if you know him. He's an, also an, a Zen monk, an ex-Zen monk who teaches Cohen study mm -hmm. and he wrote the light inside the dark and he was one of the 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 and he's a he's sort of a teacher of mine because I follow his Cohen studies um and he highlights in his book 
a deeper wisdom beyond the sort of the, like you say, the paradigm, the linear conceptual, I'll call it daylight thinking, right? Yes. <laughs> right. And his book, he wrote this thing I want, and I'm going to take the quote from his book, and then I'm going to butt up against a quote from your book, and you're going to be amazed. Um, in his book, he wrote something very similar to what you wrote about in Darkenment. He wrote, it's not all the it's not all that hard to get enlightened. What is difficult is to keep giving up our sense of the world so that it can come to us on its own terms with its vast, pitiless, loving intelligence, unquote. Now, you wrote this when you said that one of your purposes in writing this book was to address spiritual bypassing, which we should talk about a little bit. Um, that's also one of my crusades, spiritual bypassing, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of Tarant's quote. You wrote, quote, spiritual bypassing is the use of spiritual practices and concepts to avoid and even deny painful realities. This perpetuates reality avoidance feel good escapism and the use of spirituality to find an island of peace to hold on to. There is no island of peace. I love that. Um, there is no escape from the mess of our heartbroken world. He called it pitiless, but you call it heartbroken. Only when we stop trying to escape and invite the whole messy world into our hearts Will our heartbreak be made whole? Now, to me, this is the central point of the Buddha's first teaching of the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, especially the first of the Eightfold Path, right view. I think too many people don't get what right view is all about. I think what you're talking about is right view. Mm -hmm. So can you say more? <laughs> yes, uh, I'm with you completely. And I love the interplay of those two quotes and both books. And would just remind us um, of the intersubjective nature of conditioning. And that even if we hold the intention or aspiration to be aware we have these blind spots and these collective blind spots. And if our neighbors and friends, if our sanghas, if our leaders are holding the same conditioning we are, it's much harder to see uh, the soup we're swimming in. Yeah. It's much harder to see it as conditioning. And I think there's such strong conditioning through binary perception and this fixation on light to keep things positive, to push away and try to transcend the sticky, messy, heartbroken world we're in, to try to keep things positive rather than embrace and welcome what we consider negative, to address that entire system of labeling at its source that right. through practice, we're invited to be with all of life as it is, to remember the compassionate awareness that is always already welcoming what is. And instead, and this goes to the human discomfort with the unknown, 
we've been very conditioned. Okay, well then I'll I'll go into if I can go into my thinking mind and then <laughs> label the unknown and categorize. This is positive. <laughs> this is a really difficult emotion oh, over here. Oh. This is uh, good. This is bad. This is higher. Right. This is lower. Then I can find a false sense of safety through this labeling, understanding, rational mind system. And it's been pervasive for a really long time. And I think it's important to remember the influence of the Cartesian era of yeah. the 18th century age of enlightenment in Europe, which was obsessed with rationalization <laughs> and in which so many people who were representing other forms of knowing and more relational forms of recognizing the divine were burned at the stake. And uh, all of that conditioning is still with us. <laughs> and so even though it's wonderful that in this age there are so many more people coming to spiritual practices and meditation and there still is quite a theme of spiritual bypassing and quite a tendency to divide into two our human experience and uh, try to stay positive which doesn't allow us to and this is what the other author was pointing to as well it sounds like acknowledge the already existing light within in every single moment <laughs> to, to recognize uh, right strength and love that we already are yeah right i, I loved how you talked about that going into your mind you know it's like i think a lot of people and i'm not saying this in a judgmental way i, I get it uh, a lot of people come to that meditation and some of them come screaming back to teachers and sangha leaders and saying well i can't stop my thoughts and then you have to remind them well that is not really what your thoughts are supposed to do blah 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 or others come and then they find this nice little place where they can circle around in their stories <laughs> and or circling around in some feel good kind of like guided meditation and i'm yeah. not judging guided meditation people but too many i think of the people depend on that and so what they're actually doing is just jumping off into the externals of somebody telling them a pretty little story and then they keep that in their mind and it all feels nice and so they keep coming back to it every morning and 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 then what happens is they never get to know what's actually going on here right and, and yes. they, they don't at all yes and, and so you know that's not meditation and i think there should be i i like to teach analytical meditation it's it's a it's a practice that came from tibetan buddhism which is about reflection mm -hmm. if we don't do a little bit of reflection if we reflection comes before meditation if we just jump into meditation i'm afraid most people do jump into spiritual bypassing mm -hmm. do you yeah. think i think there is something to what you're saying yeah. i think uh, meditating alongside inquiring and learning for daily life to be a living inquiry, which makes it a living meditation, a living practice of what you expressed before as deep listening, right. <laughs> um, holding questions and allowing for ourselves to be shown for clarity to be revealed to us for conditioning we might need to see and let go of to be revealed to us. So yeah, it's beyond it's far beyond <laughs> sitting to find an island of peace or to have a particular experience and try to have that again and again and one yeah. thing just coming up for me because i know both of us have had 
the experience in life of navigating chronic illness at some point. And I don't know about you, but for me, and I write about this in the book, it ended up being my greatest spiritual teacher and initiation into the teachings of darkness because number one, uh, there was no longer the level of energy that I was used to so that I could put that energy to maintaining the sense of fixed identity and the habit patterns and my relationship to the thinking mind <laughs> right, right. that I used to be able to. And it was also so much an experience of being turned upside down so that even rational mind couldn't be um, quite the domain of daylight and who I was in the daytime, as I talk about in the book, kind of got turned upside down. And what was strengthened was the intuitive, the experience of connectedness within the unknown, the openness and mystery of the night but it healed so much. So I don't know if there's anything you would want to say about that relating oh, to your yeah. own experience. Well, absolutely. But, you know, my listeners are probably bored with it. I've told this these stories <laughs> a, million, <laughs> a million times because I've always, I always talk about my two greatest teachers. Um, one was being diagnosed with systemic lupus very young. Um, my, my mother had it and I got diagnosed when she was, um, almost lost her life from the disease. And, but I had suffered with the symptoms of it all through adolescence and my teen years, but didn't know what it was because they didn't know what it was then. There was nobody wow. knew autoimmune at all. Yeah. And so I was diagnosed in my twenties. And um, so, and I'm now will be 70 in January. So, you know, it's been a long, long haul. And so, so that was my number one, my number one greatest teacher, because and I always say it's for two reasons. For one, transcending the unknown, because it was at the time I was diagnosed, they said you had five years to live. Wow. Um, and so I kept, you know, that was like, and and I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, like what, what you know, I'm my kidney's going to give out, what's going to happen. None of those things did happen. Mm -hmm. And, and as it happened, they found out that, well, no, not, not all lupus manifests that way and blah, blah, blah. But the other part of it was to, I think, build a deeper understanding um, with people who aren't like other people, um, you know, um, and and it, it has created a, a deep sensitivity, almost too deep sensitivity. I would say too deep many times of, of being to ableism in our culture we yes. have a lot of isms but ableism is definitively one that's and i saw it a lot during the pandemic um so yes so i have that and the other one was um i was aware that i was gay when i was very very young mm -hmm. so having to live as an other um and this was in the 50s before um Stonewall. So, you know, it wasn't something mm. you could tell anybody about. And when I did, I was traumatized because I wasn't accepted. So, um, you know, those two things, both of those gave me a deep sensitivity to what it's like to be an other, even though I have white privilege, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very much a wasp if my coloring doesn't give that away to you. <laughs> um, and yet, it's nice to have the cha the challenges are the greatest teachers and my t 
teacher always said, um, accept and you talk, you used the word transcend and transcendence before. My teacher always said acceptance is transcendence. And mm. this is not a weak, feeble acceptance, but a di dynamic acceptance of like what you and John Tarrant wrote about, about the world coming to you on its own terms. Yes, yes, yes. And I want to thank you um, first for presencing ableism and acknowledging the connection between all of the ways that each of us in our own life experience, I can touch so many of these places myself, but uh, do not fit with the quote unquote dominant paradigm and the invitation through the pain painful experience that that can be to learn to perhaps at first to have to learn to no longer other those parts of ourselves and therefore no longer other uh, humanity and this book teaches a lot about the invitation of darkness as the invitation to drop into the field of all welcoming presence that is not othering that is not yeah. seeing through the divisive eyes of this versus that or better or worse or that is welcoming all of life as it is and the tear in the fabric of human relationship due to this hierarchical perception and the xenophobia and the um, degree to which so many people and listeners can touch this within their own experience are still othering and judging parts of themselves for not fitting quote unquote normalcy whatever this made up idea is <laughs> which is completely different in every single culture across the globe but that that whole system comes down through I believe patriarchy and hierarchical perception is here's the system you all should fit right instead of teaching people and inviting people to celebrate uh, what we might point to as holism the every expression of life uh, not seeing through the lens of this versus that this is better this is worse yeah that's yeah. excellent yeah exactly that's absolutely true and you you touch on something else that i wanted to talk to you about and that is like uh, you went to it before about the getting into your mind and and, and mm -hmm. labeling it this is good this is bad and then in your book by the way which i love this term and i'm going to steal it and use it all the time if it's okay by you um <laughs> sun shining mm -hmm. um uh and if i'm paraphrasing correctly it's how our culture focuses only on the good pretty much the happy the comfortable right the in our external world um, as things to pursue, like if we're not comfortable, like, and that it fits with the ableism theme too, you know, if, if, if we're not comfortable and if we're not, we're not part of the world. And, you know, I, I, I did a podcast, what I called, um, uh, uh, disappearing, um, because as I've gotten older, I realized that older people disappear. Mm -hmm. Nobody takes you seriously and you know or or a lot of time they don't even want to talk to you um but but um and and they kind of ignore you in stores and it's a, it's a very interesting experience um before i lost my hair i had white hair so it, you know i was clearly an older person so it um can you this this sun shining um and you said that it, i think it doesn't surprise me we've reached this point in our culture about alternative truths 
right? Yeah. And the denial of reality, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And I won't get political here, but you know what I'm saying. And it seems like denial is something that is ingrained. And you definitely talk about this in your book, in our cultural ethos. You know, it's like, I want what I want. I want what I always had. The pandemic illustrated this a lot, I think. I I, I just, I want everything to be the way it was, despite the reality of the pandemic pandemic despite the reality of climate change denial is like the strong sort of thread uh, so i'll let you thank more. you i i think it's so important to name that thread of denial i think it's a huge thread within the field of white supremacy it's a huge thread as we face climate crisis uh, it's a huge thread as we face every ism today so in my own experience, you know, I share in the book, I grew up in the city of LA and I talk about LA as quite an epicenter uh, for this habit of sunshining uh, that I'm speaking <laughs> to. And as you named, let's keep it light, let's focus on uh, not just this, uh, it's like a surface pursuit of happiness and recreation and comfort, but um, an avoidance, an actual avoidance of discomfort and an avoidance of complexity and multidimensional conversations and <laughs> right. all of that that's required in the human experience. And as a young person, you know, number one, I grew up in a family of activists and artists and a, a definitely a outside the box family, a wild family, which I'm grateful for, and a family of people engaged in really heartbreaking uh, work in the world. Uh, my mom's work was based throughout my entire childhood in Skid Row as the epicenter. And that's where I spent a lot of time. And um, many people in my larger family are outside the, the box in terms of their um, choice to, to live as uh, artists, their um, not fitting into uh, norms of sexuality and right. gender expressions and this and that. And I think always being a sensitive person, always aware that there was almost this uh, invisible boundary with a lot of people around me, not so much family, but the culture of right these topics are okay but let's not touch those topics let's touch at the very surface like i could list so many different ways people do that <laughs> just yeah yeah they make an expression that's inviting just let's touch just the surface of your grief <laughs> eden uh or just the surface of the the loaded issue of homelessness within los angeles for instance all of that and it was such a gift when i came to meditation practice and i'm sure you can touch this within your own experience and for the first time felt this absolute permission this spaciousness the boundlessness of presence which said bring it all on bring it all here all of it is welcome every permutation and vibration of your grief to your love to your ecstasy <laughs> to what's pleasant to what's painful there's just no longer a divide right right and that's so deeply freeing <laughs> so i will say that just like transparency and compassion are uh, contagious 
going beyond sunshining is contagious. And as soon as someone is willing to show up to a conversation or a community gathering or a relationship, inviting real uh, depth, <laughs> the door is open for everyone. You with me? Yeah, to totally, totally. And, and, and yeah, it's like, it's the, I just sunshine is such a perfect, perfect term for it. And um, yeah, it, it is, it, it describes so much in our culture and, and I, and there's a lot of things we could say, but I'm, I'm trying to keep cognizant of the time that's going flying by here. Um, uh, I, I wanted to talk one more subject if you have a little time, please. Um, because as my dog-eared copy of your book testified, um, I have a lot to talk about. But one is the your combination, and we talked touched it a little bit about it, your study and practice of shamanism with Buddhism, which might cause some possible readers and maybe my listeners to judge or reject because of what you you refer to this in your book as and it's something i've always referred to the woo woo factor um <clears throat> which you always talk about yet you know in most buddhist cultures too um there are indigenous belief systems like ban and tibet um so it's natural to have this although people in our culture kind of don't maybe they don't know it and probably they don't know it is because there's this almost persistent misappropriation of Buddhism um, to highlight only the rational and the linear and at, at, and under, you know, to, to we're, you know, sacrificing it to the gods of secularism and capitalism or whatever. Yes. Uh, and so woo is very touchy and I even hesitate to go too far into subjects um, my listeners might see as woo-woo. And sometimes I feel bad about this, like it's a disservice um, not to talk about intuition to more, not to talk about imagination more. Or as you wrote, quote, it is our nature to pay attention in the moment and to be responsive to life as it is happening. And that as it is happening is not linear. I mean, Thank by you. its very nature, <laughs> it's not linear, right? Because it's yes. coming at us from all directions. And because we exist in deep time and dropping into presence puts us in touch with the three times. It opens up a field right. beyond the linear. It's true. It's one of the things I appreciate the most in practice that we're meditating to learn to be fully present and not pit this moment against a perceived imaginative different world. But we can also learn to consciously use our imaginations on behalf of life, which is something I talk about in the book. Right. I want to give a shout out for Zenju's uh, new-ish book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen. It really touches oh, this topic okay. beautifully. And acknowledges, as I feel like you just did such a good job of, again, some of the collective conditioning that keeps us judging um, rational as God and everything else as secondary to that. And from my perspective, I want to say again something I shared earlier in this session that I believe every ism we're, we're facing today stems ultimately from a 
a deep disconnect with the earth and a disassociation right. from our bodies as alchemical vessels. Um, our bodies as center for receptivity to all of life. And folks, this includes the human realm, and it also includes the more than human realm. So one of the binds we've gotten ourselves into is this real anthropocentricity. The yeah. human-centered world is it. And that's as um, ferocious as egocentricity or wake-centricity, the focus on daytime and this modern world we've created is real and most important. And practice, from my perspective, invites us to, well, the teaching of Dogen, return to source. Right. And return to source is also return to Gaia consciousness, to the consciousness of this earth and ourselves as not separate from it. And this includes far more than the comfortable. This is another striving towards the comfort, comfortable domain of the, the human created world and the rational mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great place to end. And I think earth touching Buddha sums that up because yes. who who testified that the buddha was awakened it was the earth right that, yes it was the yes. earth and yes. and we won't say mara's capitalism but i'll say <laughs> <laughs> so um it was wonderful to talk with you today eden um I like I said I could have gone on forever. Is there anything that I didn't ask you, didn't say that you'd like to add? I feel complete. I've so enjoyed our conversations and just the interplay of each of our experience and practice. I know you'll let people know where to find me and my yes, work, and to let people know that I have some beautiful offerings around luminous darkness, including a year-long, just monthly gathering that begins online in January and some deeper trainings. And thank you to everyone who's here listening with us. Yeah, that's, gr that's great. Yes, I'll put all of that in the show notes, all the links, everything's going to be there. And I encourage people to explore your work um, more deeply because you'll be surprised. Um, so thank you again, Eden. And uh, it, it was just a wonderful time to have you on my podcast. Ditto. Thank you. Next up, some announcements. As always, a reminder that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha is currently studying the Shin Buddhism classic River of Fire, River of Water by Teatso Uno, so now is a perfect time to consider joining. If not the Sangha, consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to, mem to members-only podcasts, an education series, a private um, community group hosted by Heartland, and the Introduction to Buddhism class and the new Bonus Contemplation podcast. If you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any social media platforms we post in, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha. Go to www.everyday.com everyday-buddhism.com and click on the tab that says join 
community or Sangha. I can't stress enough how important it is to this podcast and the related groups to receive your donations. I don't seek podcast sponsors or ask for financial commitments through paid podcast memberships. So my work and the cost of the infrastructure needed to support what I do is entirely self-funded, except for your donations, which is getting, makes it harder and harder to maintain, um, considering inflation and the rising cost of everything I pay for to make this happen. So please consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or my website, you can find the links in the show notes. And also, another way you can help is to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You know, it's important uh, to share this podcast with others if you find it helpful in your life. And if you could, take a minute to comment rather than just rate so people will know why you love everyday Buddhism. And thanks again to all of you who write in with comments and questions. I do read everything. I can't always respond. And when I do, I certainly can't respond right away. So be patient and I'll try to do my best. And that's it for all the announcements. Until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. Mm-hmm.